Sometimes it's helpful to have um, a framework about concentration and mindfulness, uh, renunciation, and loving kindness uh, as we kind of move move into the retreat. So I wanted to first talk about. <clears throat> How's this? Ooh. <laughs> Should I start again? Did you hear me at all? Okay. So, um, usually it's described that there are kind of two uh, very different kinds of concentration. Is that okay? Okay. And it's um, divided into fixed concentration and momentary concentration. And so I'm going to add a little um, bit in the middle of that uh, just, just to explain more what we're doing in this practice. So the example of fixed concentration, which we're not doing, would be as if we turned off the lights in this room and we lit one candle, just one candle, and the instruction for the sitting would be to um, just keep looking at the candle. And if you had a thought or sleepiness or fear or some body sensations or if anything calls your attention, um, you ignore it and you repress it and ignore, ignore, ignore. Anything that's happening, you ignore, ignore, ignore. And you just stay with the um, one object, the candle. You keep looking at the candle, you keep looking at the candle. And the goal of that kind of practice is oneness, tranquility, and bliss. Sometimes I think that's what we usually are signing up for, right? So just to keep that in mind, there's that, you know, just it's an extreme kind of um, doing, and it's, it's an extreme kind of control. So you're connecting. I just want to remind you, you're connecting with that, but with with just this. Um, ex- it's exclusive of everything that's happening in the universe, but that but that candle. And then the type of concentration that we do in the vipassana practice is the opposite. It's called momentary concentration. So just, you know, it's good to kind of take it in. I can speak quickly, but it's, it's good to take it in. So that the idea is that every moment is changing. And because life is alive, right, you don't really want the breath to stop, right? You want it to keep moving. You want everything to keep moving because that's the how things are alive. They're not dead. So this practice is um, meant to go in the direction of more and more inclusive, more and more inclusive of everything that can happen in the universe. And the goal of that practice is um, wisdom. It's peace. It's peace with anything that can happen or everything that can happen. So you're connecting again in this practice 
but you're connecting with how things are, how things are moving and changing. So in Vipassana practice, uh, you will hear us say at times um, that we're anchoring the attention, like we're anchoring the attention with the movement of the breath, or we're anchoring the attention with the hands, or with hearing. That means that we're compromising in between the fixed and the momentary. But we're choosing one small area of the universe to watch change, to be with change. So you're still not trying to fix it with one object, but you're picking one area of the universe to then notice change. So the pra- it's a practice. It's a practice of being able to take a small area, say that, like the sound of a car going by on Pleasant Street, if it's very difficult to have the attention try to find that sound because why? The sound is moving at the speed of sound. So you're trying to connect the attention with that speed and then be concurrent with that speed and um, understand the nature of the sound by being with it. So, so you're learning how to do that with um, small places like hearing or hands, or breath. Because when you try to do the momentary concentration without any kind of control whatsoever, or direction, you might notice a thought, a body sensation, a thought, a breath. It's very quick, and eventually the attention gets lost in thought. And um, maintaining that kind of connection without any control takes the most training. It's so changeable. It's so hard to do it. Um, And that's the the direction the practice goes in, is learning how to be with that momentary concentration because you're more in alignment with the truth of how things are. Are Are you following that? It's so important. And so you can see the anchor. I see it as a kind of break of the car. You're just you're slowing it down enough to be with it, right? It's just like you, we're in the realm now of concentration where you see that surface of the pond and you're trying to get the surface of the pond still enough through the anchor so that you can actually um, have the attention. I think of it as, as, as like paddling out to catch a wave or running to jump in. You're trying to have the attention uh, synchronized with the speed of life itself so you can jump in and flow with it. And mostly, we're so distracted, we don't even know that's possible. That we, we can be that fully present with how things are. Because, of course, that's where insight comes. So the talk is, is about this process of... Um, coming to enough stillness to actually be able to be with the movement. It sounds paradoxical. It is. But that's how it works. And it's fun when you get a sense that that's what we're doing. You're sort of running to be able to jump into how fast the speed of life is actually going. Another way you can see this is it's like the, the momentary concentration is like a wilderness and the anchor is like a domesticated garden. So you kind of tend the garden of the anchor 
um, and then you're willing to just kind of go kind of out into the um, the wildness, as Jesse says, the wildness of the moment-to-moment um, mindfulness. This is all about exploration. It's not just about concentration. That's our birthright, is being able to explore who we are. The fundamental question is really, who are we, right? Or who are you? Who are we? So we're learning how to explore what life is without concept. When a moment of um, life appears, it's non-conceptual. It's without concept. So to kind of bring in another aspect of what supports this exploration... Uh, is a renunciation. So just especially for people that are new, that there's a sometimes you wonder, well, why are we, why are we not writing? Why are we not reading? Why are we not blah blah, you know, whatever. And uh, but we all go through when we come on a retreat. No matter how much we practice, there'll be a point where like, why, why am I walking slow? You know, it's like you just you need a little reminder of why, right? It's it's hard. To shift, it's we shift. We shift from such a busy doing awareness to this non-doing awareness. Uh, it's it's beautiful and exquisite, but it's a transition. So, if you think of the kind of giving up, there's that sacrifice of our daily doing, um, busy lives. Uh, it's it's meant to be seen as being done out of kindness for ourselves. So if you if you contemplate the sense that it's really the indifference to our own suffering and the world's suffering that causes more suffering, and we're usually so busy we don't notice how indifferent we are to our own suffering and others. So that 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 you you give up something. Um, it's important to honor that, that you're giving up something so that you can actually go in deeper and, and see more clearly. And when you go back out into the world, um, you're, you become a refuge for others. If you know how to be with fear or anxiety, you can help anybody be with fear and anxiety. If you know how to be with anger, you can help anybody. It's universal. Or joy, if you get attached to joy, you can help anybody learn how to be not attached to joy. To feel it, but not get um, caught and attached, right? All these ways that you learn how to be with sleepiness here, you'll be able to help anybody. It's not like a selfish act, it's actually a very courageous, kind thing to do for the world. And also there's a result of this renunciation. The kindness of the renunciation results in conserving energy. So this is a big deal on the planet now, right? Conserving energy. But it starts with learning how to do it. Individually, each person knowing how to conserve their energy. In this case, you're conserving your energy so that you can be more peaceful, bring more peace to the world or more kindness. 
So that description of we need enough energy to be able to explore. It's usually when, you know when you're sleepy and you're not interested in it, or like there's fear and you're not interested in it, or there's anything happening and you're not interested in it. It's because you're tired. So we conserve energy so that we build energy so that we can be more interested in what's happening. And then it's, it's natural. It's natural to want to explore. Even when it's painful. This is the idea that you're, you're including joy and sorrow and pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You, you, it's, it's called the deep delight in the truth of how things are. That you have to have enough energy. Which will happen. I know the first night of the retreat, we're not always right there with it. (laughs) It'll come. So I'd like to ask you to close your eyes if they're not closed. And I'm going to ring the bell. And so we're going to practice connecting and sustaining the attention with the momentary concentration. So just, just the question is, what is attention? And then how do you connect it with the speed of sound? And, and so I'll ask you to see, once you can connect, you'll, say, you'll see that there can be the thought about the sound, the concept, which is bell. But the non-conceptual awareness is actually receiving the texture and vibration of that sound in, through your ear door, not through the thought door. And you don't try to stop the concepts about the sound. You can't. The thoughts will happen so quickly. But you distinguish between the concept and the, and the non-conceptual reality, the conceptual reality, non-conceptual. Conceptual. You learn to distinguish it. I'm going to ring it one more time, and this will be to see if the word concurrent is really connected to this um, momentary concentration. Once you connect the attention, you see if you can sustain it with the current, with the flow of the movement of the sound. See if you can stay with it. And if you're ahead or behind, just notice it. There's nothing wrong. You just notice, notice it. Did you notice it end? So Vipassana practice, is, it's, it's more than it seems to be, because we were not mindful then. We were just, this is just concentration at this point. This is why it's hard. So you have to have, when I say you need just enough concentration, the idea is whether you're, this is why we slow down, if you're lifting, moving, placing, 
the leg or foot, or if you're noticing the movement of the breath or thought or fear or anger. This includes everything. It's the same practice. The practice is connecting and sustaining the attention not with the, not through the thought process. And so say you're with the beginning of the movement of the breath and you're actually able to be with it and you see it end, at some point we'll understand its nature. That's, that's mindfulness. Mindfulness is when we understand the nature of what's happening. But you, you're not. <laughs> the trick is we try to figure it out through our thought process, and the idea is that you're 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 understanding it intuitively. It's called intuitive insight, uh, non-conceptual insight. You're understanding that it's impermanent, um, not through the thought process. It's with it's the, with the whole universe with you. And so if, it was, if there was nothing moving, it would be dead and there could be no insight. <clears throat> but because it's alive, it's changing. That's where the insight is. So what, another way to say it is that the truth of how things are is directly known It's directly known, not through the thought process. That's all you have to know. And that's where wisdom arises. So I'll go back to that description of Vipassana, which is its being with the nature of how things are. And this is its understanding that we're going kind of deeper inside. Uh, So, of course, when we go deep inside, it connects us to everything. Because, of course, is the, is the sound out there or is it touching us here in the ear, right? Is the, is the, are the stars out there or are they, is the light touching the eye here? These are all questions to ask, not to take my word for it. But as you go deeper inside, it connects you more and more with everything. So, it's so amazing. So the, there are um, three universal truths that anybody or any being that takes birth here experiences. So this could be the robin that is giving birth to babies you know, up underneath the um, roof as you walk out of the front door. This is, this is the red eft uh, in the forest or um, anything any being that takes birth will live and die. This is the, the first truth of existence. It's an existential truth that we all share. It connects us with all beings. So important. And we might think, well, I know all about impermanence and change, but do we, moment by moment? It's, it's a vast exploration. If you've had some insight into it, it, ne- it, it's like it never ends. There can never be an, an end to this learning. How could it, if it's the truth? It's always new. So each moment is, is being born again. Each moment dies and is 
newborn. Each moment is newborn. It's that powerful, a world we, we <clears throat> take birth into, all of us. And it's said that the next insight, that, which is, a, again, thinking of it as a, a fundamental truth of existence, it's based on the first insight of anicca, or change, impermanence. It's because experience is changing, always changing, impermanent, that experience is unreliable. Dukkha, unreliability, insecure, undependable. And, and so again, this is what makes the awareness free, where liberation starts to come, is in this understanding that experience isn't something you can depend on. It goes up, it goes down, it goes pain, it goes pleasure. And we're always holding out for the pleasure to last a little longer and the pain to you know, be a little shorter, right? It's our nature. Uh, but it's, it's, it's learning that um, peace comes from accepting this unreliability of experience. You get stronger. The strength in this practice comes from being connected with these truths. We're, we're much more safe and protected when we are connected to impermanence and when we're connected to dukkha. And we're not safe and protected. It's like we're surprised when something changes and the experience wasn't dependable. And the third truth of existence is often the most difficult to, um, I think, give a clear enough meaning to atta is self and anatta means no self but it means that nothing exists by itself and there's a um, consequence to that which is uh, it's called uncontrollability that the nature of experience is that it's not controllable So, so often I think that sort of the conven- in a conventional world, the happiness that we're taught to seek is often in getting things. And that there's a certain happiness in that that is real and true. But this practice is about a, a deeper, it's, it's, the, it's a contentment of peace. It's a, it's a deep peace, it's a deep serenity there's nothing like it it's worth every um, it's worth anything everything to uh, understand I think as the world kind of careens through 2019 how could we not yearn for peace and less suffering I mean how could we not and we can get so upset and angry and disappointed, etc. But it's like it's finding how hard it is to find that inside. When you see how hard it is to find it inside, you understand why it's um, the way it is. That that we all need to um, put ourselves in these incubators so that we can understand what peace is and to bring it into the world.
So when we talk about non-conceptual understanding of reality, it's very important for me to um, emphasize that this is not to reject what we're good at. And so we're, we're really good at analysis. We're really good at thought. <laughs> we're like, we're so good at judgment. You know, we're so good at all this. We're so highly trained. And yet when we start getting encouraged to let go of it, <laughs> explore uh, this non-conceptual reality, we get afraid. We're like, well, please don't take this away. And you can't. You're really good at it. We're all good at it. It's, this is not rejecting thought. I hope you can hear us. We'll say it over and over again. Not at all. But it's making space. It's like understanding that what we're trained in is just like the tip of an iceberg. Just that really our, the, focus, the locus of our attention is up here. We think the heart and mind are up here. In this practice, the chitta consciousness is considered in the heart. The knowing the ability to know experience. Chitta is here. And that's as um, vulnerable and sensitive and vast. It's like, how could boundless loving kindness occur if the mind itself, heart, wasn't vast? Not separate. So when we explore non-conceptual reality with our body, um, we, we do have to use concept, but we try to encourage, um, instead of relating to our foot as a visual image or the breath as a visual image of the belly or the, the, the face as a visual image, particularly our image of our own face, right? It's fascinating, again. When we have our eyes closed sitting, the idea is to, of course the visual image will come, but you see if you can put that aside a bit and just bring the attention to what is really there, what is really apparent rather without the, the concept the vi- or the visual image. And so we will use words like warm or cool, but we understand that there's still words. And we encourage you to n- not pounce on it with the attention. If, it, if sensations call the attention, rather than pounce it on it, know it and, and move on. That it's much more d- slow than that. It's really taking the time to just go, hmm, you know, what I think of as my cheek and the visual image, some sensations are calling. To, to maybe you notice coolness or warmth, maybe not, or pressure, tingling, soft, what, whatever words we say, what we're, what we're describing are the four great elements. We're describing the body as a process of earth, air, fire, and water continually changing. But we understand that that's still concept. But it's much less conceptual than head. Right or foot. It, these words are meant to help us be interested and to understand that what we call my body is really just made up of food. Air, water, earth. And, you know, again, it's like this disconnection from the planet. How can the planet be in such peril? Well, look at how, to, how interested we are in our body. It's the same thing. 
the disconnect is so profound that mostly people relate to their body as something to put their head on. Really, you wake up in the morning, you put your head on it. Really, it's like this is the modern world. How can you get through school without being like that? You know? And so there's a, there's a, 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 a whole new world. The Buddha said you could understand the whole universe through understand your body, by understanding your body. You don't have to go anywhere else. And there are, like on the elements, the element, the, the, the um, pleasant element of earth is uh, soft. The unpleasant aspect of it is hard. So we wonder, well, why do we sit here so long? Well, maybe you'll get in touch with earth element, the, the unpleasant aspect, hard, right? You, you want your bones to be hard. You don't want to be a little amoeba. Right? It's like we want our bones, but do we want to feel the hardness? Right? <laughs> it's really true. I'm kind of valuing my bones at this point as they're disintegrating. <laughs> I want them to be hard, right? You know, it's just amazing, um, really, how we want it all to be soft when we're sitting, rather, and we want warm, cool, not hot cold. There'll be a certain point in New England where it's been, you know, pretty hard, long winter and spring, right? But it'll get really hot, and people will start complaining about it pretty soon, right? You know, and we're like, well, do we want the air conditioning on, you know? Within like a couple days. It's amazing. This is how we are, but it's that in Vipassana, you're learning to stretch. You're learning to stretch beyond what you're used to being comfortable in. Air element, tingling, pressure. We like all that stabbing, throbbing. It starts to get into, hmm, right? I don't know if I like air element. You know, there, there can be these amazing range of like pleasant to unpleasant. All, you know, this range just like in the universe. There's galaxies and black holes and it's all inside all inside us. But remembering that we are encouraging taking the time with the wordless and using these descriptions of the elements as a way to understand that it's not just my foot or my breath or my fear. You know, it's this this understanding that we're made up of elements helps us to cut through possessiveness. Because it's not true that we possess our body. We steward it. We don't possess our emotions or thoughts. If you could control them, you would. (laughs) If you could control getting old, you would. And so trusting this kind of, it's like us dropping into the non-conceptual. It, it's because we're so in our head, it feels like you're dropping into something or sinking in or jumping in. Um, and it maybe it lasts like the, for a few seconds. They're like na- nanoseconds of timelessness. And they have great impact. Touching the truth of how things are once in a day is good enough 
it has great impact. We have a um, student in, um, from Winnipeg in Canada that they have winters much more, more intense than in Massachusetts or where, you know, most places. Um, and he said, he's um, a little older than me, and he said that when he was a kid and went to school, his older sister um, and him would ride to school on a, po- on a pony. <clears throat> and it was far to school. And one time when they were in school all day, this blizzard came unexpectedly, and they had to get back home, miles and miles to get home. And his sister was always behind with the reins, and he was always in front of his sister. And you know they did this day after day over years. And this blizzard hit, and uh, they got really lost. And they were freaking out. It was so horrible. And then at some point, his sister just, what? It wasn't through the thought process. She just got this feeling, and she dropped the reins. And the pony, the pony took them home. Your body's a pony, right? Our body's a pony. <laughs> There's a message in the story, right? <laughs> we don't like to drop those reins. And it's just like when we do, oh, that's what I mean by we just fall in for a while. And it's wonderful. It tastes wonderful. But you can't control that. If we could do it all the time, we would, but we just get afraid or, you know, we get upset or, you know, we get sleepy, whatever it is. But that's okay. It's just that's... um, Learning how to be connected with whatever's happening and not take it personally and take it as part of being human rather than judging it. This is the way it goes. We don't, it's not our sleepiness. There were some um, great poems by a, a Chinese hermit um, recluse named Han Shan. There isn't that much known about him. And this is really about the sense that we have a homing instinct for something deeper than life and death. We have a homing instinct for timelessness. If you look for it, you can't see it. It goes in and out without a gate. If you shrink it, it exists in one square inch. If you stretch it, It is everywhere. If you don't trust and treasure it, you can't encounter it. So by coming here, it's that homing instinct of trusting and treasuring it. And then you just... I always call it you punch in in the morning when you wake up, punch, punch out when you go to sleep, and just let the experience do itself. The experience is going to do itself. And that's dropping the reins.
This is um, from one of my teachers, Sayada Upandita, and it's about spiritual urgency. It's, it's very sobering. Um, he said, one should reflect on the fact that the whole world of beings is made up of nothing but mind and matter, which have arisen, but do not stay. Mind and matter do not remain still for a single moment. They are in constant flux. Once we find ourselves in this body and mind, there is nothing we can do to prevent growth from taking place. When we are young, we like to grow, but when we are old, we are stuck in an irreversible process of decline. Nature cannot be deceived. We cannot escape old age and death. This is the main weakness of beings. Beings are devoid of security. There is no safe refuge from old age, disease, and death. Look at other beings, look at animals, and most of all, look at yourself. There is no security. Perhaps reflecting on the precariousness of life will cause some urgency to arise in you and give you a strong impulse to practice. Vipassana meditation can lead to a place beyond these fearsome things. And this is what I mean by being safe and protected. That when we are connected to that truth, we're protected. And when we're having aversion to that lack of security, which we all do, right? We, get, we have aversion to that vulnerability. I almost didn't want to read this because things were sort of going nice, right? We're all there with it. We dropped the reins, okay. You know, but then, you know, there's like, oh... Well, maybe I should bring this up, yeah? But it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> this is part of the why we're here. <laughs> to find something deeper. This is it, right? But if we're having aversion to the undependability of experience, which is partly what we're seeing here, uh, we're not protected. And then there is no... Um, there's no impulse to find that treasure that's deeper, the awareness that's free of experience. That's what we, our experience, when we're chained to it, you know, we suffer. And it's that indifference to be, being changed to it um, that is what we drop. That's dropping the rain. And you know... Most of the world is pretending that there is security. <laughs> right? And that's what's so hard, really. If you care about this practice, sometimes the hardest thing is, you know, it's like, wow. that um, It feels less and less safe in the world because people are pretending. So as I said last night, this um, and and with the um, momentary change, this isn't a state-oriented practice. And that when boredom comes up, you understand that you can be fully liberated if you connect with boredom, and you don't take it personally, right? It's not my boredom, and it's getting interested in it, or sleepiness, or anything that happens, hearing. 
feeling ordinary, needing massive reassurance, you know, whatever the experience is, that it's okay if you connect with it. So I think of that, the, um, it's the disconnect that's so, um, it's like we abandon ourselves. That disconnect, it's like, oh no, not, not boredom, right? And then we're not connected to the truth. So if you look at that shift from, oh no, not this, to, oh, maybe I could try <laughs> accepting this, that maybe I could try accepting this is warm. That, that rejection of like, oh no, not this, it's like, that's cold. So when we talk about tenderness or kindness, that, or the, even the compassion, the care, it, it has a quality to it of this shifting from the rejecting to maybe I could try being with this, or maybe I could try anchoring the attention. This is what we're teaching, anchoring the attention to hearing or the hands or breath. We don't have to be with something that's too difficult to be with. There's no, no reason to push it. We're teaching not to stay with things that you can't be mindful of. It's, it's just, it just drains the energy. There's no need for it. You go into the little domesticated garden of the anchor. And then you build up the energy. You, the anchor is meant to be a place to conserve energy and build up energy so that maybe the next time boredom comes up or whatever, we don't want to be there, there might be enough energy courage to be with it. And this, this is the rhythm of the practice, is understanding. Rather than thinking that we have to be with everything all day, it's, the, it's not like that at all. There's a rhythm of anchoring and being with the moment-to-moment flow of experience. Anchoring, breaking the car, you break it, you, it's, you're not, you can't stop life. This is not the fixed concentration, but you slow it down, and you really literally take a breath, take a breather. Very important. The more you learn how to break and you know, go into the garden and, and be with hands, hearing, body, just without being pulled into all these difficult things, the more um, free your mind is. The more choice you have, the choice of going into things, wise, it's wise. It's wise to go into it when you can and wise to um, anchor when you need to. There's a um, woman that lives across the street from me. She's only there part-time. Uh, she's a whale researcher uh, from Alaska, but she does some research <coughs> in Hawaii. And um, this winter she emailed me and said when she came she was going to invite uh, this woman, Katie Payne, to 
do some research with her. And she really wanted us to meet her, but uh, we were so busy we never... <laughs> I can't believe I never had a chance to meet her, but I um, asked her and learned more about her, but she was the first um, person to... <clears throat> she was the first scientist to discover that humpbacked whales compose songs. They compose these ever-changing songs um, to communicate And it, it turns out that um, in the early years of her research, for 20 years, she worked with her husband, who he was the one who was known for it. And she, he was the biologist, but she was actually a musicologist. She studied music. Um, and in the years that she was with her husband, she was the one who got that they were singing. That they were comp- and that they were composing songs. And then they went through a divorce, and when she was kind of in the hard part of the divorce, uh, she asked this zoo, I think it was in Oregon, um, she heard that a baby elephant had just been born. And so she wanted, you know, she felt like it was some, something different she needed to do. So I wanted to read you what um, she learned by hanging out with these the sp- these elephants at the zoo. I noticed little by little through that week that I was feeling over and over again a throbbing in the air, change of pressure in my ears that would occur when I was near the elephant cages, but not when I was in other parts of the zoo. And I knew just enough because of the whale studies, to know that there is a sound below the pitches of the sound that human beings can hear. And lo and behold, we discovered there was a whole other communication system that no one had known about. It was just below the frequencies our ears could hear. So she started a... a, She's she's done a lot of research with elephant communication. and then she was asked, um, how has the work with whales and elephants made you think differently about being human? And she said, well, the ocean is really huge. When you get out in a little boat, you know it. You're clinging to a cork. <laughs> it's huge, and it's capable of immense hugeness. And out there, you know, rolling around and swimming through And perfectly at home in the waves are these enormous animals. And by golly, they're singing, (laughs) of all things. They're doing something that we recognize as singing. And so what this has done for me is to make me feel that what, what lies ahead to be discovered is absolutely limitless. We are not at the pinnacle of human knowledge. We are just beginning. And I really want to convey that that's what this practice is all about. But it's, a, it's about our, our inner wisdom, that there's a vastness of exploration that, um, 
if we put ourselves in the conditions where uh, we can tend to that and have the patience to wait for the um, out of the great kindness of the renunciation, you, you have that patience for the energy to build and you anchor a lot and anchor enough that, that there will be these times where you drop in and can explore ex- uh, non-conceptually and really understand on deeper and deeper levels uh, the nature of how things are. And this gives you more and more freedom of, of, of choice, of relationship. It helps you learn how to relate to anger, not be oppressed to it by it. You learn how to relate to anything that appears, not be oppressed by it. Uh, and so why wouldn't we want to be doing this with such joy, uh, even though sometimes... We hate it, right? I mean, it's like you—you're willing to go through those places where it's hard and and then wonderful and boring and and just that—that's—that's the stuff of life itself. So let's sit for a minute. May we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.